Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Hebrews chapter 6 brought us to the third warning passage about the danger of remaining immature, about the danger of sitting idle in your faith. Now the author of Hebrews did not want this for his fellow believers in Jesus Christ. He didn't want to see them drift in their faith. He didn't want to see them drift in their walk with Christ. And this morning in our text, we see the path forward. We see just how it is that we, as believers in Christ, can stop drifting. Australia's having a bit of a problem. Now, it isn't much of a surprise because actually all the continents are on the move. Australia drifts about 70 millimeters to the northeast every single year. Genesis 1 teaches us that the land, you remember, was all in one place. And 2 Peter 3.6 teaches us that the world that existed in Noah's day, it was flooded with water and the land, it all broke apart during the flood and the continents we know today have been drifting ever since. Australia is drifting at a rate that is too slow for us to notice. You wouldn't notice it with a common eye. But that journey is now starting to mess with systems that rely on that pinpoint accuracy, meaning it's messing with GPS. You see, Australian GPS was last updated in 1994, and the entire country has moved a little more than five feet since 1994. It's causing problems because you guys know how much of our technology relies on GPS. I'm wondering how Angie Baby would get anywhere with it being <laughs> off by five feet. You should be happy, Walter. I didn't throw you under the bus. I threw my wife. Well, they actually use uh, tractors there in Australia that are automated that help us. I think Google, by the way, is kind of evil, but at the same time, I think they've saved a lot of marriages because you don't see the maps anymore and you don't see people fighting in the front of cars. But they use tractors in Australia that are automated that help them with the farm work. But the information about the farms doesn't line up, of course, with the coordinates coming out of the navigation systems. And they actually are a little bit ahead of us. They use cars there that drive themselves for shipping and deliveries. But again, without accurate coordinates, without accurate maps, it's a huge, huge problem. Now, if you've lived long enough, in other words, if you're old, then you know that everything on earth changes, including the continents. But for the believer in Jesus Christ, there are three crucial foundational things that will never change. 
God does not change. His word does not change. And his promises to his people do not change because they are settled in the heavens forever. And this is where the author takes us in Hebrews chapter 6. We pick it up with verse 9. He says, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. Now he addresses them now as beloved. The author saw them as belonging to the family of God. These tender words were written for the redeemed in Jesus Christ. He was demonstrating his deep love for them in an even stronger term here than the word brethren. You see, he had a confidence. He was persuaded of better things for these believers. He didn't think they would turn away from the truth. And he was confident of this because they knew the horrible consequences of turning from the truth of Jesus Christ. You see, I think these words are an expression of hope, salvation here in the text. It's not just about our initial redemption. This is a reference to our full salvation, to all that was ahead of them, to all that he had been speaking about throughout this entire epistle. This is how the author of the book of Hebrews actually used the word earlier in the book, and this is how he's going to use it again later in the book, in Hebrews 9.28, as a reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ, where he says this, he says, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time, notice with me, apart from sin, there's our word for salvation. You see, the author is thinking of a time when man will be crowned with glory and honor and ruling with Christ in his resurrected state. Now, this is the glorious destiny of believers who are faithful to Christ here, now, in this life. And the author is about to explain in the next three verses the better things that he has in mind. And he's going to list out work and love, diligence to the end, faith and patience. Things that are actually useful to the work of Christ. Things that God has provided for us to help us grow in our spiritual faith. Now salvation here is the victorious participation with Christ in the coming kingdom. And only those believers who continue to walk in fellowship with the Savior, only those redeemed believers who continue to live according to the truth will inherit the promise of God's rewards in his coming kingdom. Now, the author has an expectation that these believers will not turn back and will enter into God's rest. They will enter into his blessings. Verse 10, he says, For God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. If you ever think to yourself, boy, I don't know if my work for Jesus Christ amounts to anything. I don't know if anybody notices. Read verse 10, because God notices. He doesn't forget. You see, it's saying that God is not unjust. What is that? Well, that's an understatement, telling us that God is infinitely just. He wouldn't abandon them, and he doesn't simply forget his people, those who serve in his name. 
You see, a just God can never overlook the love that they were living out in obedience to Jesus Christ. So continue on, he says. Don't turn aside. Don't give up. Because the believer in Christ can know that every faithful work done for the glory of God will be rewarded by him. God is righteous. God is just. He will reward his people. Now, the author could have this conversation because these people were given to a labor of love. It was genuine love for Jesus Christ and their fellow believers that motivated them to actually do something, to get involved. And it was done for the honor and glory of Christ. You see that people that don't care about serving, people that don't care about doing anything or working for Christ, it shows that there's something wrong in here. There's a heart problem. Love leads to labor for Christ. Then we have verses 11 and 12. Read it again with me. It says, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end that you do not become what? sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Notice the wording. We desire that each one of you. The goal was simple. The goal was to press on to maturity. This is why they should show the same diligence. Because to make this decision as a believer in Jesus Christ, that you're going to actually press on to maturity, it should reveal a firm conviction of the heart, giving the full assurance of hope until the end, the confident hope that Jesus is actually who he says he is. He is the Messiah. And the end, what is that talking about in the text? Well, that is maturity, which is what God wants for you. He wants that for every believer. If you're sitting there praying and saying, well, what does God want for you? He wants maturity. He wants you to get into his word. He wants you to study. He wants you to serve. He wants you to worship. He wants maturity in Jesus Christ. The formula has never changed. It's never changed. Faith working itself out through love and motivated by what? Hope. You see, he's warning the Christians here of the danger of becoming lazy in their faith, of becoming kind of pathetic in their faith. Churches today, not just our church, I'm not talking about that. I'm saying churches all across our land, they are filled with people like this. But instead, what does he say? He says, imitate the godly example of those who live with faith and patience. Because those people will inherit the promise of rewards in the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. And even under the persecution, what I love about the book of Hebrews is even when they were suffering for their faith, some of them were still working. Some of them were still ministering to the saints. You see, he wanted them to remain faithful to God while waiting patiently for Christ to fulfill his promises to them regarding their future inheritance. You see, there is actually a subtle teaching here to pick your friends wisely. Follow those who live out their faith in Christ, faith in God. Surround yourself with people who are willing to serve others and share their faith in Christ because the people you surround yourself with, the friends that you choose can make us or break us in how we walk with Jesus Christ. The first example for us is found in Abraham. This is an awesome text. Verse 13, let's read it. 
It says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Now, I don't want you to miss the beauty of these words. The author is about to explain to us the reliability of God's promise to the Christians through the high priestly ministry of Jesus the Christ. It may be that discouragement had set in for these believers because Christ had promised in John 14 that the day would come when he would receive his own. It may be that discouragement had set in because the Hebrew believers believed the promise of Matthew 24 and 25 that Jesus Christ is going to return in power and glory to usher in the Davidic kingdom for Israel. They believed God's promises, but they found it difficult to be patient. Do you ever get tired of being patient for Jesus Christ? Abraham is the first example. Abraham was strong in his faith, strong in his patience. And the writer is using Abraham as an example here of the relationship between faith and patience so that the believers would not grow discouraged, which would lead to them becoming sluggish and weak in their faith. Notice the mention of a promise. The divine promise to the patriarch was stated in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12. This is the promise of God to Abraham. Let's read it in Genesis 12. It says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, we can do the math here. This isn't that hard to get. A significant part of this promise was the promise of a future son. Abraham and Sarah had no children. And in order to have a nation, you're going to need to have a son. You're just going to need to have some offspring. The only guarantee that they had that a son would come was what? It was the unconditional word of a God of integrity. You see, God alone was responsible for the statement of promise. God alone would accomplish it. There was no one greater than himself to whom he could appeal to in an oath. He had to swear by himself. Then go forward in time. In Genesis 17, God again promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, that his offspring would one day inherit the land that was promised to them. And Isaac, he came onto the scene in where? Genesis 21, just as God promised. He was born in Genesis 21. But then what do we see in Genesis 22? God tested Abraham, instructing him to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. You see, God was never going to let Abraham go through with it. But Abraham demonstrated, showed his trust of God. Abraham didn't have a clue. He didn't have any idea how God was going to work it out, did he? But yet, what did he do? He trusted. God had provided a ram for a burnt offering, but this was his only son, the son of promise. And Abraham was willing to go as far as God wanted him to go. And then we read in Genesis 22 that God did take an oath to himself. It says in Genesis 22, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven, notice this part, and said, By myself I have sworn... 
Sounds like Hebrews, right? By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. You see, God's word itself is a foundation strong enough for our trust and our confidence. But when God did an extra step, when God added his oath to his word, it made the promise even more certain. You see, back in Hebrews 6, here's what the author is doing. He's saying to the Christians, follow the example of Abraham. Because it was 25 years, that's a long time, it was 25 years between the first promise of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 and the time that Isaac was actually born in Genesis 21. Abraham patiently endured and he continued to trust even when God instructed him to go to Mount Moriah. Now Paul and good old Paul, Paul doesn't leave most subjects untouched, does he? Paul actually talked about this in Romans 4. Paul said that Abraham, contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And then look at what Paul said next, still referring to Abraham. He said, and not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief but was strengthened in faith giving glory to God you see back in Hebrews the author is telling them Abraham finally obtained the promise in the birth of Isaac he finally obtained the promise Moses said it like this in Genesis 21. He said, And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. See, Abraham trusted. Abraham was patient. He waited patient. He was willing to offer his only son as a sacrifice. Now that, that is faith. But notice the end of verse 15 back in Hebrews with me. It says, after Abraham had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Abraham received all that God wanted to give him. The author of Hebrews wanted them to continue to trust God, continue to obey God, just as they had done in the past. You know, it's a hard thing to do to stand for Jesus Christ. It's a hard thing to do today to stand for his word when you're being persecuted for your faith. But God promised believers his enabling grace on the journey from immaturity to maturity. And while we are on that road, Christians, we are called to exercise faith and patience as we trust in God to bring us toward maturity. You see, the message from Hebrews is that Abraham's life assures the believer in Christ, you and I, that we can reach the goal of maturity in our faith if we continue on that path, if we continue to patiently wait on the promise of God. And there's not a one of us in this room that doesn't face the battle. The other day I was reading about a young man from Chicago, and he traveled down to the bluegrass regions of Kentucky 
And while he was there, he met and he fell in love with a young woman who ultimately came back to Chicago as his bride. They enjoyed three wonderful years of marriage, but then just one day, out of the blue, she had a seizure of pain, and the young woman, quite honestly, she just lost her mind. I mean, when she was at her best, she was a bit irrational, and at her worst, she would just scream. And it was so bad that the neighbors would just start to complain about all the noise, about all the commotion. So the young businessman, he left his home in the middle of Chicago, and he went out to one of the western suburbs, and he built himself a house, determined to try to nurse his wife back to health and sanity again. And one day, the family doctor actually suggested that he take it a step further, to take his wife back to her Kentucky home, where the familiar surroundings might help to restore her sanity. So off they went. They returned to her old home, where hand in hand they walked through its rooms with memories hanging on every corner. They went down to the garden, and they walked by the riverside, where the flowers were in full bloom. But after several days of this, nothing happened. Nothing seemed to change. So defeated and discouraged, the young man put his wife back in the car. And after they headed back to their new home in the suburbs of Chicago, when they got close to home, he looked over and saw that his wife was fast asleep. It was the first deep, restful sleep she'd had in a long, long time. And when he got to the house, he lifted her from the car. He took her inside. He put her to bed because he could tell that she wasn't done sleeping. She needed more sleep. So he covered her with blankets. And they just sat there patiently by her side and watched her through the midnight hour. And he continued to watch her until the first rays of the sun reached through the curtain and touched her face. And the young woman she awoke. She saw her husband seated by her side, and she said to him, I seem to have been on a very long journey. Where have you been? And that man, speaking out of days and weeks and months and years of patiently waiting and watching, just said, My sweetheart, I've been right here waiting for you all this time. You see, that's the way that God wants you to respond to him. He's already shown us as believers in Christ his love. He's already shown us that. And now he's waiting for you believers to respond with love towards others. Waiting for you to respond with trust in his promises. Waiting for you to cast yourself upon the grace of God. Waiting for you to comprehend more deeply what it means to be loved by a holy and righteous God. He waits patiently for you, and your response is to wait patiently for him, for his return. You see, when life is hard, and it seems like God is unresponsive, when it doesn't seem like he's answering our prayers, wait patiently, because he will keep his promise to us. So continue to hold fast to your hope. Now watch with me how this text builds. It's a fascinating passage. Verse 16 he says, for men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. You see, now, God didn't just give Abraham a promise. He also gave him something else. He gave him an oath. The promise contains the content of the covenant. The oath represents the unconditional guarantee of its fulfillment. 
Here's what the author is saying to us. Men swear by something greater to reinforce the idea that their word is true. But what is an oath intended to do? Its purpose is to be a guarantee of integrity and to be a solution to any dispute. When a person wants to end an argument, one way that people do it is by calling and appealing to a higher authority with an oath. You see, what do we do? Men appeal to something higher than themselves. I swear on my mama's grave. You've heard that one, right? I swear on my mama's grave. Courts, I don't know if they still do, but they used to have men swear to tell the truth before God and man with the help of God. In Bible times, if you swore by something greater than yourself, it meant that the dispute was considered to be settled once and for all. But I want you to consider something with me this morning, that God himself, binding himself by an oath, it's not a reflection on God needing to do that. It's not a reflection on his lack of credibility. It's a statement about us. It's a statement on the perversion and depravity of men. See, men use these type of oaths to back up their statements because men are absolutely unreliable. Men break their word. Men lie. But God's word is absolutely true. And so for God to have to take an oath, it's kind of redundant. It wasn't needed. But it was something he was willing to do because of our frailty, because of our weakness. He's binding his word to his character. And God is trying to reach us at our level. And so he took an oath because he determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel. Here's what I'm saying. God's plans are not frustrated by any man. Do you hear me on that? God's plans are not frustrated by any man. He will do whatever he wills to do. His counsel is immutable. And so he gave Abraham both an oath and a promise to show Abraham that God would do exactly, exactly what he had said. God's use of an oath supplied evidence that no one could doubt. And just as Abraham trusted in the absolute faithfulness of God to see him through the times of confusion and the times of doubt, believers in Christ, we can lean on that same unchangeable nature of a God who keeps his word. Now, some more beautiful words ahead of us here, starting in verse 18. He says that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. The author now lists out two things that are immutable, two things that cannot change. God's promise and God's oath. God is truth. God cannot lie. And his promise and his oath are two things that men can trust at all times. And this is meant to be an encouragement to you, to me, because God has also promised us many future blessings in Jesus Christ. And it is the rewards that the author has in mind that Christ has promised to the faithful. And he closes out verse 18 telling believers who are drifting that instead of running from Jesus Christ when you have problems, run toward him, run toward his promises, flee to Christ for security, flee to him for protection from the uncertainty of this ever-shifting and changing world. He's saying take encouragement that we can flee to Christ and lay hold of the hope set before us. The hope 
we have is the assurance of life after death in a resurrected and glorified body. And that hope involves eternal fellowship and glory with God. But through faith and patience, we must wait. We must wait for that fulfillment. You see, the unchanging nature of God, let this encourage you in your faith. Someone said it like this, because God is omnipresent, it means he's here. Because God is omniscient, it means he understands what is going on in our lives. Because God is omnipotent, it means he can help. And because he is immutable, it means that he will never change. And this we can count on. Because God cannot lie to us any more than he could lie to Abraham. Wait on God. Wait for his promises to come true. Hold fast, the text is telling us. Grip on and hold fast to Christ. Take hold of the promise that God the Father has given through Jesus Christ. Grab hold instead of just aimlessly drifting and living for the world. Grab hold by faith. Because having a firm grip on hope, it is the cure for living in despair. And the hope set before us is that we will go on to maturity in Jesus Christ. But hope in the Bible, it's not what you may be thinking. It may not be how you use that word. It's not just something that we kind of just, eh, we wish for. Hope in Scripture is something more solid. It is the settled confidence that comes to the child of God who rests by faith in the promises of the Word of God. You see, we have been promised that we can be brought to a state of maturity in Christ. And this settled confidence is to be to us what an anchor is to a ship. Now read our last two verses with me. And here's where we've been building all morning long. He says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters, beautiful words, the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Remember that the warning has been all throughout Hebrews about those drifting in their faith, so it should not surprise us to read of an anchor of the soul. Listen to what these words are telling us. When Jesus Christ entered heaven at his ascension, he took our hope of a future reward with him. You see, in the first century, sailors would actually carry their ship's anchor in a small boat and put it on shore so that the ship would not drift away as the waves would crash and beat upon it. And the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, the hope that Christ has firmly planted in heaven for us should be an anchor for our souls to keep them from being tossed around in the storms of life. Now, this anchor should keep us from drifting from God because our anchor rests firmly in the holy of holies, in God's presence in heaven. Our anchor rests in the very presence of the almighty God. Behind the veil, what does that refer to? Well, it refers to the most holy place. It refers to where God himself dwells. You see, Jesus entered through the veil in the heavenly tabernacle with the spotless sacrifice of his own life, and he placed it on the altar before God the Father. The person with a living hope has a steady anchor in all that he does. The hope of eternal fellowship with God can keep the soul of the believer from drifting from the purpose that God has for us here. This hope is sure. It is 
indestructible from outside sources. Nothing can separate the believer from the love of God. His hope is steadfast. There's no weakness in our anchor. There's no frailty in our anchor. Now, what was a forerunner? A forerunner was the smaller boat that was sent into the harbor by the larger ships. They were unable to enter. You have to remember that the harbors were not exactly like they are today. The harbors around the Mediterranean Sea, for the most part, they were very small. They were very shallow. They couldn't provide a safe haven from storms for more than just a few ships at a time. And the floor of the Mediterranean Sea, it's actually made up of sand. And so even if you just dropped your anchor down, it couldn't keep the ship from drifting in a storm. These smaller boats carried the anchor inside to the harbor, and then they would drop it there, or they would tie it up, securing the larger ship. So even though the larger ship was outside the harbor, the ship may go through the storm, the ship may be beaten by the wind, the ship may be beaten by the waves, but because its anchor has been placed securely within the harbor, it remained steadfast, secure, safe. And I hope you can see the teaching that even though we might be battered by storms in life as we progress on the path toward maturity in Christ, he has secured an eternal safe haven for us in glory. And so rest, rest on that promise. A forerunner presupposes that others are going to follow. The very presence of Jesus before the Father is the guarantee of the divine promise and oath. That believers will also one day appear in heaven. This is the settled assurance of every believer in Jesus Christ. Christ has gone into the heavenly tabernacle and he has remained there. This is something that the high priests of Israel's, oh, they could not do. Jesus is like a runner boat that has taken our anchor into port and secured it there. There is no doubt that this vessel is going into port. And the only question is, will your ship Go in prepared for the harbor. Have that quiet confidence that God has a purpose, that he is in control, and that your soul is anchored firmly in the heavenly realm. And then what does he say in our closing verse? The author returns to the subject of our great high priest, that Jesus has become our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which we will pick up next time. There's a remarkable man from church history by the name of George Lyle. George was a forerunner. He was just an unbelievable character from church history that you should study. He was a former slave who left the American colonies for Jamaica in 1782. He began a ministry of preaching in 1783, nearly a full decade before William Carey sailed for India from England. George was born a slave in Virginia somewhere around 1750. We're not exactly sure of the date. In 1773 to 1774, he gathered the slaves in that day for what might be considered the first African-American church in the United States of America. But when the Revolutionary War was finished, he was freed from being a slave because his master had died. And so he did exactly what I would have done. He fled to Jamaica to escape the possibility of being made a slave again. I would have done the same thing. He arrived in Jamaica as an indentured servant, but he didn't stay just that way. He would serve as an evangelist to the island. 
George became the first Christian to win a, a significant number of the slaves on the island to Christ. He was the first man to plant a church made up of just slaves. He preached in private homes. He preached in public. He gathered large crowds preaching for Christ. Hundreds and hundreds of people came to know Jesus Christ. By 1793, they built Windward Road Chapel, the first Baptist church on that island. But he faced challenges. Why? Because of racism. White slave owners feared the impact of the slave population if the slaves became Christians. And the opposition that he faced was stifling. He was charged with sedition, put in jail a number of times, but he kept preaching Jesus Christ. He kept baptizing believers. He kept planting churches because he knew his purpose, he knew his anchor, and he knew his source of strength. Because of his work, it led to the establishment of the Baptist movement on the island with slaves, freedmen, and whites all joining churches started by this man. The direct impact of his work continues on. His body, however, it wasn't put up on a shrine or an altar or anything like that. It was put to rest in an unmarked grave in Jamaica. But I have no doubt, friends, that George himself is with the Savior. Amen? Because he had an anchor for his soul secured in glory. You see, this was a man that knew the chains of slavery, but he also knew what it was to be secured to something better. The hardships could come, but a man like this does not have his faith waver because he rests in a God who does not change. And I want you to notice as we close out in verse 19 in our text that it is not just that we have hope. It is not just that we have an anchor of the soul that serves as a foundation for keeping us steady, for keeping us stable when a storm hits you in life. This hope, it reaches through to the veil of God. Picturing in your mind being in God's presence, being in God's presence and actually holding on, not moving because you are in God's presence. That is where our strength is found. That is where we receive the power to hold up in the storms because it comes not from us, it comes from God. And the author is telling us that when we take hold of the hope that is right in front of us, when we grab hold of that hope, that same hope, it reaches up beyond the veil into the very presence of a holy and righteous God. And we do not, friends, have to shift with every direction of the wind. It doesn't matter which direction it hits us from. We're able to remain steadfast and stable in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We don't have to be tossed to and fro with every storm. We can go through the storms knowing that we will see the other side. So my message to you is this. Keep holding on. Rest in the hope of what God has promised each of us because God has never made a promise that was too good to be true. Let me say that again. God has never made a promise that was too good to be true. His word will not return to him void. He will complete the work that he's already started. He's already begun in us. We serve a mighty God who will never let us go. Jesus is the one who has gone before. When used of the military in Roman times, the word referred to the person sent ahead to make sure that the way was open. They prepared the way for the army to follow. And I don't know what you're facing exactly, but I know that if you belong to Christ, you're not walking alone. You're not in this by yourself. And I know that your strength is not your own. What we learn in God's word, it will anchor us. It will stabilize us. His promises are certain. They are unchanging. They are unmoving. And when God makes a promise, it is firm, solid, and never-ending. And so you can know that no matter what is happening in your life, Christian, 
your hope is secure. Don't stop. Don't stop believing that God has prepared a place for you in glory. He's able to give you his peace and his comfort because why? He's in charge of the whole ball of wax. Trust in the everlasting God. Know his peace and know his rest. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.